And let's pray and ask the Lord for his help. Father, we thank you for uh, the privilege of gathering each Lord's Day uh, in the morning to gather and to sing and to uh, hear your word preached, um, to fellowship with your people, and then to gather again on a Sunday evening like this and to uh, take a, a dive into a book like Numbers in a little bit different format. Lord, open our eyes again to see wonderful things from your law that we might behold you and worship you more. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we are making our way through the Torah, right? We're in now the fourth book. Last week we looked at Leviticus and those laws the Lord gave to the nation of Israel that really uh, dealt with clean and unclean and how an unclean people can live in the presence of a holy God. And so remember we are the, the events of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, right, the first part of Numbers, are taking place where? Is it, there's a specific mountain that the nation of Israel, Mount Sinai, right? I should have brought some candy and I'd throw it at you, right, for like, since it is Reformation Day and that's what we do on Reformation Day, right? Throw some candy to the right answers. Yeah, that would really help. Uh, so the people of Israel, right, they have come out of Egypt. They are camped at Sinai. They've received the law of God. And now as we come to the book of Numbers, they're getting ready to move out because where are they going? Going to Canaan, the promised land. They're a nation on a mission. They have been uh, given this promised land by God. Now, I, uh, in my, my brain again, right, like I've tried to think of like a helpful analogy to help us understand the book. So Genesis, Roots, Exodus, defining documents and things like that. I think numbers you can understand if you've ever been on a family vacation, right? Uh, if you've been on a family vacation, you know you do lots of planning for your trip, where you're going to go. The destination is beautiful. The, you're, you're, you're all set to go. You buy your tickets. You load the car. The day you leave, like you get out, the, pull out of the driveway. And if you have kids, you really get this. And what's the first thing you hear? <laughs> I got to go to the bathroom. I'm hungry. Uh, are we there yet? What? How soon will we get there? The complaining and grumbling just sets in immediately. And then the weather's bad and the car breaks down. And then where you're going, you're going to the beach, but a hurricane has hit, right? And so it's, it's just a disaster. And you're thinking, what are we doing? Why don't we just stay home? Like at least the weather's going to be good. The bathroom is right there. There's food. The car works, you know? And so you begin to wonder, why do we even start out on a trip like this? But as you continue on, you know, eventually you get there, and then the, the vacation is delightful. But that, that trip there is arduous, right? Well, I think that kind of helps us, although all illustrations break down, maybe that gives you a little bit of an idea of what the book of Numbers is about. It's about a journey with a lot of complaining and grumbling and fits and starts and stops, okay? Um, so where we have been, right, is, is this— Numbers kind of begins on a high point. We're just going to kind of summarize the book briefly here. Uh, it begins on a high point. The nation has uh, been commissioned and called by God. Remember, this happened back in Exodus chapter 19. They have become, you remember there, the Lord says, you will be my treasured possession. You will be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation to me. You have a, a commission from God to be his representatives in the world. To, to carry out dominion and rule, okay? Yahweh is going to take that nation and he's going to plant them in this promised land of Canaan. They're going to function as a new Adam, ruling and having dominion over the earth. And all of this goes back to Genesis 15, right? Where God first promised Abraham, I'm going to, to your descendants, I'm going to give them a land and they're going to go inhabit it, okay? Um, and as they live in a covenant relationship with Yahweh, as they're faithfully serving him, what do they get to experience? 
the blessing of his presence. Okay, that's again why all these laws are given, so they can they can live in the presence of Yahweh. Okay, so numbers, remember the whole of the Torah, it's all one book. Numbers is a part of that, is moving the nation of Israel now to a specific place, and that's to this, this promised land of rest. Okay? Now, in Numbers, Israel is going to be given their marching orders. They're going to be uh, looked at really like an army in a lot of ways, the way that they're ordered and they are set out to march, because they are. They are going to conquer this land. They're going to go and wipe out the inhabitants. But the problem is, is the journey gets derailed. So there's complaining, there's grumbling, and, the, and rebellion. And this is really probably... Uh, the second biggest theme, I guess, in the book of Numbers, if we could look at it that way. Um, this faithlessness by the nation of Israel is something that was already seen. Remember, immediately after they come out of, out of Egypt, they start complaining. We don't have any water. We don't have any food. Before they even get to Sinai. So this is just the, the pattern of this people. And the Lord says, you know, over and over in Exodus, these are a stiff-necked people. They're stubborn. They are uh, rebellious. And so they continually are demonstrating a lack of trust in Yahweh in spite of all the things he's done, right? You've seen my signs and wonders, and yet they continue to rebel against the Lord. But Yahweh is, well, in Numbers, what we'll see is that he is a just judge who has to deal with sin, right? He wouldn't be holy and righteous and just if he were to, to just overlook it. But at the same time, he is merciful and faithful to his promise. So he's never going to forsake his covenant, covenants. He will show mercy even in his judgments that he, that he a- executes, okay? And then Numbers is going to close with the destination in sight. So we're going to end with the book of Numbers with the people ready to enter into the land, okay? So that's kind of where, where we're going. Of course, the name Numbers in the book, it comes from the numberings of the people. There are two censuses, census, since I, however you'd say that, right? M- taken of the people, so that's where we, we get the name. Uh, there, the key words, if you're just reading through it, I think the words that would jump out to you would be complain, grumble, and rebel. I think that's kind of some of the main, main themes. Um, I've given you a broad outline and then a more detailed outline. Um, the, the book would kind of hinge on the two censuses, the one at the, in the first chapter and then the census of the second generation at chapter 26. And then the bulk, the first 25 chapters all deal with the first generation and their rebellion against the Lord. And then the last 10 chapters deal with the second generation that's going to go in and take the land. Okay, so there's, there's travels throughout the book, which we'll kind of touch on briefly. But by, we get to, by the time we get to the end of the book, the nation of Israel is going to be basically on the doorstep of the promised land of Canaan, ready to go in. And that's where Deuteronomy will pick us up with that. Okay, so let's just kind of walk through um, the book. The first uh, 10 chapters I've titled Prep for the journey, preparation for the journey. Um, and again, the book begins on a, on a hopeful note, as the people have the, the most defining moments in Israel's history have taken place, the Exodus and the, the covenant at Sinai. So they know who their God is. They're ready to, to enter the land that the Lord has promised to give them. So in these chapters, we see that an army needs to be prepared because they're going to have to go in and defeat the Amalekites, the inhabitants of the land. Um, there's going to be an arrangement of the camp given that will protect the people. And then there are laws that are going to be reiterated so that people can obey and receive the blessing that comes from obedience. Okay, So these people are on the cusp of realizing something that for 400 years has not yet been realized. It was 400 years prior that that promise was first made to Abraham. Your descendants will go and will take possession of this land. They're that close, okay? 
So the, first, the census in chapter 1 is a numbering of Israel's men who are able to go to war. So this is the first one, um, the first numbering of the, of the able men. And then we get to this arrangement of the camp in chapter 2. Um, and it might seem strange at first glance. Why is the Lord concerned about the arrangement of the, tam- of the camp? And I've got this illustration. But as we talked about last week, there are, there are like levels of holiness in Israel, right? The most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant is in the, in the, in the tabernacle, and then the holy place, and then the, the perimeter of the tent, and then the camp, and then everything outside the camp is the realm of the dead or the unclean. So Israel's are, uh, tribes are, are put around, uh, the, the, camp, uh, around the, the tabernacle in order to, to protect, in essence, people going into the tabernacle, the area of the the holiness of God that shouldn't have. And if you notice inside that, you have, well, at the front, Moses, Aaron, and the priests, and then you have Kohath, Gershon, and Merari. Those are all the the Levites, okay? And so they're the ones that are encamped closest to the tent. Again, so this is to keep unclean people from entering into... entering into the presence of Yahweh, okay? Then in chapter 3, we have a listing of the Levites. So these, there's several chapters here that have to deal with um, the Levites and their responsibility and what they are doing as Israel is traveling. You know, the, the descriptions of how these tribes are ordered and the numbering of the men who are able to go to war is very much military language, but Israel's commander is not a human, right? It's Yahweh. He's going to, as we'll see in chapter 10, he's going to go forth and he's going to scatter their enemies as they come along. So their military uh, organization is different, that it begins with the priestly class. It begins with the tribe of Levi. There, again, uh, Israel's greatest enemy is really, well, not enemy, greatest danger is the presence of Yahweh that if they transgress and do the wrong thing, they're in, in greater trouble than any outside enemy can cause them, okay? So you have the listing of the Levites in chapter 3. These are the, the three tribes or clans or houses, however you want to say that, in the house of Levi. And then there's a description of the redemption of the firstborn that the Levites have been taken in place of the firstborn. Uh, you could do a whole study just on the the notion of the firstborn in scripture if you go back to exodus remember the lord calls israel his firstborn and says out of egypt i brought my firstborn and then there's a consecration of the firstborn to the lord but instead he takes the levites so there's just a and well then all the sacrifices right the firstborn the best is to be brought so a lot of a lot of interesting things there that we don't have time for uh chapter four through chapter 6, really, you have the duties of the, of the sons of the Levi. And so I mentioned earlier, you have these three clans within the tribe of Levi, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. Um, the Levites who are not of the house of Aaron, so remember Aaron is a descendant of Levi, as is Moses, and the high priest comes from the house of Aaron. Okay, um, All the other members of the house of Levi, though, serve in other capacities, in, in leading the worship of the nation of Israel. So they are given responsibilities for taking down and setting up various parts of the tabernacle. Like one group will carry the, the outer tent and the, the poles. Another will carry the covering. Another is responsible for all the utensils inside it. So there's instructions given for who does this, how it's to be done. Nothing is just 
figure it out on your own, right? Like there's specific instructions given for what is to, to happen. Um, chapter 5 through chapter 6, you have the cleanliness uh, commands and things like that. Um, there's a series of commands here. The first one is, is in chapter 5, clean and unclean people again. Um, the, the commands regarding cleanliness are not just for them when they get to the land, but as well for them as they're on the march uh, into the promised land. Um, and again, cl- uncleanness defiled the camp and defiled the place where Yahweh made his presence dwell. Uh, there's a test for adultery starting in chapter 11, or chapter 5, verse 11. Um, adultery was a way that uncleanness could happen, right? If, so what this is, is um, if somebody wasn't caught in the act of adultery, but there's a suspicion of it, there was a test for it, and it had to do with taking dust from the floor of the tabernacle and putting it in water and then drinking it and swearing an oath that they did or didn't do it. And, and there's lots of questions about what's going on there entirely, but there's a, there's a process for dealing with these things. Uh, chapter 6, you have the Nazarite vow. Can you think of who might have been a Nazarite, who took a Nazarite vow in the Bible? Samson did, right? Yep. So a Nazarite vow was a person who wanted to consecrate or devote themselves to the Lord in a unique and special way that was not everybody's obligation, right? It was somebody who wanted to, in a very special way, say, I have set myself aside, consecrated myself, devoted myself to Yahweh. So they did things like uh, did not drink wine, did not cut their hair, abstained from certain foods, and never going near dead things, which is, remember Samson who did that, he did. Like he ate honey from the carcass of the lion and things like that. Uh, broke his Nazarite vow. And then we get to chapter 6, verse 22, and this is uh, um, uh, familiar as we use this sometimes in our benediction. A blessing for the people. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them. And this is important because the nation of Israel needs to remember it is Yahweh who has blessed them. He is the one who has done this. He is the one that uh, has graciously redeemed them out of bondage. And in response to his gracious covenant, in response to his gracious law, they serve him and obey him and follow him. Um, the Lord's desire, right, for the nation of Israel is that they would obey him and that they would carry his name through all the world, right? Um, again, God's goal in all of creation is that his glory would cover the earth as the waters covered the sea. Uh, and so that is what Israel is to do. And again, we'll see in, in Joshua, right, uh, with Rahab. Uh, Rahab goes, I've heard of the fame of your God and how he did this. So Israel is carrying forth the name of Yahweh. In chapter 7, we have offerings for the, ta- uh, the, the tabernacle. These are given by the tribes. I think what he's describing here took place back in Exodus 40, when the, the tabernacle is consecrated there and the glory of the Lord descends upon, upon the, uh, the tabernacle. Um, but I think the reason that it's brought out here is because all of these items, or many of them, are, are describing things that were used for the transportation of the tabernacle, right? So these are the vehicles they're using to move the tent. You have oxen and carts, things like that. And even, even the, the vehicles used to transport the tabernacle are set apart to this work. This isn't just an ordinary oxen 
Um, this has especially been devoted to the Lord for these things. Uh, the end of chapter 7, because it's a very long chapter, what, nine, 89 verses. Uh, through chapter 8, there's the Levites cleansing, so the process of how they can be, can be cleansed. And then chapter 9, we get the celebration of the Passover. Um, again, that was something that had been instituted, right, when they came out of Israel, or out of Egypt, and they were to observe this every year. But the thing that I think is actually interesting in this, in this passage is that there is uh, instruction and provi- provision given for those who could not observe the Passover because they came, became unclean. So remember, there was, they were supposed to be clean, but these guys, whoever they were, had come in contact with a dead person, probably because somebody had died and they had to get the body out of the camp. So it wasn't that they, they sinned, but they just came in contact with a dead person. So they come to Moses and they go, well, why, do we, why should we be excluded from partaking in this great event? We want to be a part of this, uh, but yet we, we became unclean by just doing our job. And so the Lord gives instruction. These people can wait and do it the next month and participate in, in the Passover. So um, the Lord is gracious, right, in that he, he provides for these things. Uh, we see the presence of God in chapter 9, and verse 15, descending on the tabernacle. This is important because the Lord is the one who is guiding his people as the glory departs from the tabernacle. The people pick up their tents, and they pick up the camp, and they follow it. And when it settles down, that's where they stay. So the Lord is leading them into the promised land. And then in chapter 10, the first 10 verses, we have the silver trumpets. Uh, and, and when you think about it, you're like, well, this is insignificant and also not insignificant because there's a lot of like small details about uh, things that were made and instruments that were in the, the uh, tabernacle and whatnot. The thing that I think is, is significant about these silver trumpets is that uh, this was another assurance that these people were going to conquer the land the Lord had promised because they're going to use these when they go into the land and they're going to blow the horn as to signal the armies to go and to, to fight, Okay. Um, and they're also going to be used to call the people together for the feasts that they're going to be celebrating in the land. So again, the Lord is, is giving them assurances that he will fulfill what he has promised to do. So that's the first 10 chapters. And then we get to the second uh, chapter, or the second section, Israel's journeys. And this is the 40 years of wandering, okay? And this starts in the middle of, of 10. So the book begins with great anticipation, Preparation is made, instruction is made, they're ready to set out on this, this trip, but the people commit the sin of unbelief, failing to believe the promises the Lord has made, and this sin of the people provokes the Lord's righteous wrath. Okay, um, A.J. Schmutzer, if I'm saying his name right, said this, uh, there's this pattern seen throughout this section, and it's going to be seen through Israel's history. First of all, resentment of God's rule and his leader's authority. Secondly, a chronic attraction to idolatry. Third, fearfulness and divisions. And fourth, divine judgment and natural, national disaster. So we'll see this pattern over and over and over in the life of Israel. Okay, So this section is really marked by seven complaints or grumblings that we'll see the people committing against the Lord. So they head out from, from Sinai in chapter 10, verse 11. It says, In the second year, in the second month, on the 20th day of the month, the cloud lifted from over the tabernacle of the testimony, and the people of Israel set out by stages from the wilderness of Sinai, and the cloud settled down in the wilderness of Paran. So the Lord is leading his people into the next place that they are to go. 
Um, and then notice in verse 35 of chapter 10, Whenever the ark set out, Moses said, Arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. And when it rested, he said, Return, O Lord, to the ten thousand thousands of Israel. So again, the Lord is the one that is going before them. He is preparing the way. He is clearing their, their enemies out and preparing for them to go before them. Uh, so then in chapter 11, we get to the first complaint of the people. The people complain, the Lord judges and provide, provides for them. So this, this first complaint in chapter 11 is a general testing, is how it's phrased. A general testing by the people. They complain to the Lord about their misfortunes. And what happens is a fire comes and consumes uh, uh, a number of people. And Moses intercedes on their behalf. So look at verse 1 of chapter 11. The people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled. And the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some outlying parts of the camp. Then the people cried out to Moses, and Moses prayed to the Lord, and the fire died down. So the name of that place was called Taborah, because the fire of the Lord burned against them. Okay, So this is the first testing. The second one takes place shortly after this in verses 4 through 6, where they are hungry, and they are longing to go back and eat the food they had in Egypt. So he says in verse 4, Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving, and the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up, and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. Okay? So again, Moses intercedes on behalf of the people, and the Lord provides meat for them. And you can see what happens in the, uh, in the second half of this chapter. Um, the Lord's judgment comes down on the people, right? And they, they see this quail fall from heaven and they go out and they start collecting it. And those who had complained, it starts to like come out of them and they die from the plague. Look at uh, verse 30, um, 31 of chapter 11. A wind from the Lord sprang up and it brought quail from the sea and let them fall beside the camp. Uh, look at verse 33. While the meat was yet between their teeth, before it was consumed, the anger of the Lord was kindled against the people, and the Lord struck down the people with a very great plague. Therefore, the name of that place was called Kibroth Hatava, because there they buried the people who had the craving. So again, these people complain, and the Lord judges for their, for their complaint. Jim Hamilton said this. He said, Yahweh's reactions to these complaints is based on the fact that Israel owes Yahweh gratitude for the liberation and provision she enjoys. Rather than gratitude, the people indict Yahweh, who in their eyes has given them what is not good, manna, and not given them what is good, meat and melons, cucumbers and garlic. This rejection of what Yahweh has given and the concomitant, suge- and the concomitant suggestion that better things should have been provided is diagnosed as despising Yahweh. All right, so when you reject what God has given and say, no, you've actually not given me what's good, you're despising the Lord, okay? And that is the, the charge, and that is what these people are doing. And then in chapter 12, uh, we see opposition to Moses from his siblings, okay? So Moses, uh, his brother Aaron, and then his sister Miriam, they come up against Moses, and they're upset at him over marrying a Cushite woman, um, and they're also complaining about the fact that the Lord only speaks through Moses. And so they think, well, why doesn't the Lord speak through them? And so the Lord speaks to them, and he judges them for their complaint. And Miriam becomes leprous, 
like instantly she becomes leprous because of this charge. Uh, but the Lord does does heal her. She's put out of the camp for a while, and then he and then she is she was healed. Then in chapter 13, we get to the, the, really at this point, the people have traveled and they're right on the verge of the land of Canaan. So in these chapters, they've traveled a fair distance. Um, and if you have the maps in the back of your Bible, you can go and trace out where they went and things like that. It's kind of lost on us though, or at least on me, because I don't have any correlation to how far that is. I hear traveling across a wilderness and that just sounds like a long time, a horrendous ordeal, but, but they make it. So in chapter 13, we get to the spies in the land. Um, this is the, the, you know the song, 12 went out to spy on Canaan, 10 were bad and 2 were good. No, but you guys don't know that either? Wow, all right. Well, no, that's for another time. Yeah. Uh, so what happens is, again, these spies are sent out to, to see the land that the Lord has brought them to. And this is the fourth instance now of a complaint or rebellion against the Lord. So the, the spies return, and what do they say? The land is great, right? It is flowing with milk and honey. They bring back some produce from it, but there's a little problem, right? And it's filled with giants, and we are terrified of these giants. We do not think that we can overcome them. Um, and so the people fail to believe what the Lord has said about possessing a land. So what do they do? They grumble and complain. Oh, Moses, you brought us here to die in the wilderness, it'd be better if we were just back in Egypt, right? Well, at least we wouldn't die by the hands of these giants. So they fail to believe what the Lord has said. However, uh, there's a couple, of th- we'll look at chapter 14, uh, verses one through four. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry and the people wept that night and all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, would that we had died in the land of Egypt or would that we had died in this wilderness? Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. So they're ready to hightail it back to home, they think, okay? But a couple of things I want to note. First of all, notice the faith of Caleb and Joshua. So there's 10 bad ones and two good, two good spies, Caleb and Joshua. They believe the word of the Lord. They say, no, this is the, the Lord has promised to give us this land. He will. So look at verse eight. Uh, Caleb says, if the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land for they are bred for us. Their protection is removed from them and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. So Caleb, like he's a believer. He's like, Yahweh has promised this. He's shown himself faithful. He's prom- We're going to go in and take it. They may be giants, but their protection is, is taken away from them. But he recognizes that a failure to obey is rebellion, right? is rebellion against the Lord. Then notice in verses 11 and 12, the Lord's complaint against this people. The Lord said to Moses, verse 11, how long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? I will strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them, and I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. Okay, so the Lord's complaint uh, that these people, in spite of the things he's done, they will not believe him. Um, And then notice also the Lord says there to Moses, I will wipe these people out and I'll make another nation out of you. Has he said that before? Back in Exodus. Remember at the golden calf scene? 
Um, the Lord said, I'll, I'll start over with you, Moses. And this is where, the, where Moses petitions the Lord on behalf of the covenant he's made. You can't do that. Be faithful to, to, the, to the promise that you have made. And this leads into Moses' uh, intercession, again, on behalf of the people. Look at verse 13. And, and here I want you to notice, think back to, again, Moses' intercession back in, in Exodus and how the Lord revealed himself. So verse 13, Moses said to the Lord, then the Egyptians will hear of it, for you brought up this people in your might from among them. So he's saying the, the Egyptians will hear of you striking out this people if you, if you wipe them out. Um, this, this people in your might from among them, and they will tell the inhabitants of this land. They have heard that you, O Lord, are in the midst of this people, for you, O Lord, are seen face to face, and your cloud stands over them, and you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and in a pillar of fire by night. Now, if you kill this people as one man, then the nations who have heard of your fame will say, it is because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land that he swore to give them, that he has killed them in the wilderness. And now please let the power of the Lord be great as you have promised, saying, the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and fourth generation." Please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you have now forgiven this people from Egypt until now. Okay? You notice those last few verses? What is, what is Moses referring back to? Back to Exodus 34 and the Lord's revelation of his name. Remember when, when Moses said, let me see your glory. And he said, I will, you, I will pass by you, you can see my back, and I will proclaim my name to you. And he proclaimed his name, which is, I am the Lord, the Lord, the, uh, and I'm not going to be able to quote it right off. Uh, here, I'll, I'll read it to you in my notes, right? Uh, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So what Moses is doing is he's appealing to the very character and nature of God that God has revealed in himself. He said, Lord, this is, what you, this is how you have revealed, revealed yourself to us. Tr- deal with us according to your character. And the Lord, of course, does that and will do that. Um, so the Lord does pardon, but he also judges as well. So in verses 22 and 23, um, he says, none of the men of, who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and yet have put me to the test these 10 times and not obeyed my voice shall, shall see the land that I swore to give to their father. So those who complained, who put the Lord to the test, who have despised him will not enter the promised land. They will die in the wilderness. So that is the Lord's um, just judgment and at the same time, he's merciful, and he does not wipe them out when he, when he could. So these, these ones will not possess the land. Their children will. Only Joshua and Caleb, the two spies who brought back the good report, will they be able to enter the land. So this is where we have this distinction of the first generation of Israel and the second generation. Okay, so the first, will, first generation is going to die in the wilderness. The second generation is the faithful generation that will go in and conquer the land. So the people, they respond in uh, verse 39. They're like, oh wait, hold on, uh, do over. We'll go in and we'll go and possess the land. They go up and they are beaten badly. Uh, they're told, don't go up, you will lose. But they do anyway, and so they are, they are defeated. Chapter 15, there's several uh, commands that are detailed, and I think these are 
specifically given when you go into the land, this is how you are to behave. This is what, how, how life is to function for you. Then we get to chapter 16, the rebellion of Korah. This is a really strange kind of passage, I guess I would say that. Korah is a group of Levites, and they are angry that the, the, the high priest can only come from the house of Aaron. And so they say, why can't we be the high priest? So there's a little test to see if, if, uh, if they should be the, the, um, the high priest. Verses 28 through 30, uh, you have the parameters of this test. And what happens is the Lord is, is certifying that Moses and Aaron are his chosen men. The house of Aaron is to be the, the house that the, the high priest comes from. And what happens is Moses says, if, if the Lord does something new today in terms of, of judgment, then we'll know uh, that, that the house of Aaron is to be over that. And what we see, um, look like verse 30, uh, or 29, if these men die as all men die, or if they are visited by the fate of all mankind, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord creates something new and the ground opens its mouth and swallows them up with all that belongs to them, and they go down alive into shale, then you shall know that these men have despised the Lord. And that's exactly what happens. The next day, Korah gathers together, Moses and Aaron, the ground opens up and swallows all of Korah into it, all of these people. And so the people of Israel again know, like, oh, Yahweh is God. But what do they do? Immediately after that, in verse 41, the next day, all the congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and against Aaron, saying, you have killed the people of the Lord. They don't really get it, right? (laughs) You just saw the earth open up and swallow people alive, and the next day you're grumbling against the Lord. Um, And so the Lord again responds by sending a plague on the people and Moses and Aaron Again, intercede on behalf of the people. They make atonement for them. They stop the plague, but not before 15,000 people die. Okay? So again, this is the Lord's judgment on this rebellious generation that's going to die in the wilderness. This is how they're, they're dying, by these acts of judgment from the Lord. Okay? Um, in chapter 17 through chapter 18, we see the Lord puts an end to the complaining through the ministry of the Levites. Um, the Lord again shows that Aaron is the one whom, uh, who, is, who has been chosen to be the high priest. Uh, there's, and, I, and I don't fully understand the picture that's happening here, but there are, are rods that are taken to represent each of the 12 tribes. And the Lord says, I'm going to make one of these bud, and the one that does is the, the house that I've chosen. They'd write the name on each one, and so Aaron's buds. Now, there is more significance to, to it than just a budding staff. I'm not entirely sure. But the point is that, again, Moses and Aaron are the ones the Lord has chosen. And rebelling against who the Lord has chosen and set in this role is despising the Lord. Okay? And so that's what's, what's happening here. Um, chapter 19, you have some laws for the purification and dealing with dead things. Chapter 20, we see another complaining of the people. This is another important chapter. They're complaining about water. And, and in this chapter, Moses disobeys, right? So Moses is going to receive judgment here. Um, the Lord gives Moses instruction. This is how I want you to provide water for, for the people. I want you to speak to the rock, and the water will come out. And Moses, well, let's, let's read it. What does he say? Um, verse 10, Moses and Aaron, this is chapter 20. Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, Here now, you rebels, shall we bring water for you out of this rock? 
And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice, and water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank and their livestock. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. These are the waters of Meribah, where the people of Israel quarreled with the Lord, and through them he showed himself holy. Okay, so what what is happening here is that Moses, by not obeying exactly as the Lord has said, he is not showing Yahweh to be holy. And notice like that in verse 10, where he says, shall we bring water out of the rock? All right, so, so even there, there's a, there's a disconnect in what Moses is saying and doing and where the, where the water comes from. Uh, Jim Hamilton again said this. He said, There's a direct connection between believing Yahweh, obeying Him, and upholding Him as holy. The person who refuses to obey Yahweh's words exalts himself over the expressed will of Yahweh. So when he did not follow through exactly as the Lord had said, he, it is disobedience. Um, we tell our children sometimes, uh, imperfect obedience is disobedience, Right? When, when we don't obey exactly as we've been instructed, it's still, still disobedience. Uh, chapter 20, so Israel is moving now as a nation, and they interact with their cousins Edom. Okay, so Edom is the descendants of Esau, the Edomites. Jacob and Esau, remember the two twin brothers? So whenever you see that connection that Israel is at war with Edom, that's who it is. That's their distant, very distant relatives, Okay. Uh, Aaron dies in chapter 20. They have a victory over Arad and the people of Arad. And then we get to another rebellion in chapter 21, uh, st- starting in verse 4. And this is the bronze servant com- complaint or uh, scenario. Um, this is also another general complaint. This is the final complaint in the book of Numbers uh, that the, the people had, because remember we said there were seven of them. Um, the people complain about where they're at, the food they have to eat, the water to drink. So it's kind of the same, same song, second verse. Um, so the Lord sends poisonous snakes amongst the people as a plague, and the people bite, or the snakes bite the people and they die from it. But the Lord provides a, a way of salvation, right? And he tells Aaron, go make a golden serpent or a bronze serpent and put it on a stick. And whenever the people look to the serpent, they will be healed, okay? Now, this has a very important biblical theological connection. Why? Christ, right? In, in John chapter three, right? When Jesus says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up. So in the, in the, the mind of the Jew who's hearing that, they're going, oh, I know what story he's talking about. I know that uh, event in the life of, of, of the nation of Israel. And now I can understand more of what Jesus has come to do, right? And it's greater salvation than the one that, ha- that needed uh, to happen with these, with these poisonous snakes. Um, then in chapter 21, there's more uh, travels, starting in like verse 10 uh, through the end of the chapter. We see that Israel traveling, their enemies, they defeat King Og, and they'll later, it was this in, in this portion where they defeat Sihon, yep, Sihon and Og, two, two kings that they, they conquer there. Summarizing these portions, though, is that what we see in, in all of these accounts, all of these complaints, the Lord's testing, the Lord's, or the Lord's judgment and the people's testing of him, is that God's wrath strikes the heart of all sin, which is unbelief, right? The, 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 all sin is the sin of unbelief, right? 
I don't believe what God has said, and I choose to do what I want to do instead. That's, the, that's what Israel does. Every time we sin, that's what we do. I don't believe what you've said is best, Lord, and I'm going to choose to do my own, my own thing. Um, also, in these plagues, right, we see uh, the consequences for covenant violation. Back in Leviticus 26, the Lord said, when you, when you break my covenant, when you break my law, there are consequences and there are judgments that will befall upon you. And ultimately, the, the judgment that falls on these people is that they are forced to wander in the wilderness for 40 years, okay? So this leads us into the last, like, main section that we're going to look at here. Um, and this is the Balaam oracles. So it starts in chapter 22, uh, and it goes through chapter 24. And this is interesting not just because a donkey talks to a man, which is kind of bizarre and interesting and things like that, but because of, of how the Lord, again, reiterates his promise to bless his people and to bring them into the land and make them fruitful and multiply, but this time through the mouth of a foreign prophet who's sent to, to curse these people, okay? So what, what's happening is the king of Moab, whose name is Balak, so you get Balak and Balaam, hires Balaam, a prophet, uh, to try and curse Israel because he's scared, right? He, again, he sees the might of this nation. He sees there's something different about them, that they've come out of Egypt, and so he's, so he's fearful of them. And so the Lord uses this false prophet Balaam not to curse, but to bless, to bless the, the people of Israel. Um, and this, this passage and what we're going to look at, these oracles that he makes, they are drawing our attention not back to the covenant that the Lord made at Sinai, but to the Abrahamic covenant, and that promise that was made to Abraham and to all of his descendants thereafter. Okay? So Balaam, uh, first of all, in chapter 22, we see that he refuses to do what Balak has asked, and he does this because he knows, I cannot curse those whom God has blessed. I cannot, uh, cannot do that. But Balak uh, ultimately convinces Balaam to go. And so in chapter 22 and verse 20, uh, he says, God came to Balaam at night and said to him, If the men have come to, come to call you, rise, go with them, but only do what I tell you. So Balaam rose in the morning, saddled his donkey, and went with the princes of Moab. Okay, so the, Balaam goes, um, but ultimately the Lord uses his donkey, right, to get his attention. Um, Look at verse 35. Uh, no, 2022. Sorry. Uh, God's anger was kindled because he went, and the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way of his, as his adversary. Now he's riding on the donkey, and his two servants were with him. And the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with a drawn sword in his hand. And the donkey turned aside out of the road and went into the field. And Balaam struck the donkey to turn her into the road. And then jump down to verse 28. Then the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey, and she said to Balaam, What have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? Balaam said to the donkey, Because you have made a fool of me. I wish I had a sword in my hand, for then I would kill you. And the donkey said to Balaam, Am I not your donkey on which you have ridden all your life long to this day? Is it my habit to treat you this way? And he said, No. I love the fact that Balaam doesn't, there's no question about the donkey talking to him, right? He's just interacting with it. Like, this is normal conversation. You know? I, sometimes, yeah, I, I love that, right? It just, it makes me smile. Um, so anyway, the, the, the donkey gets Balaam's attention, um, 
Verse 31, Then the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand, and he bowed down and fell on his face. Okay, so this leads us into these, these different oracles. There's four oracles. Um, the first oracle in chapter 23 Verses 7 through 10. Let's read this. Balaam took up his discourse and said, From Aram, Balak has brought me, the king of Moab from the eastern mountains. Come curse Jacob for me and come denounce Israel. How can I curse whom God has not cursed? How can I denounce whom the Lord has not denounced? For from the top of the crags I see him. From the hills I behold him. Behold a people dwelling alone and not counting itself among the nations. Who can count the dust of Jacob or number the fourth part of Israel? Let me die the death of the upright, and let my end be like his. So this first oracle recalls the promise the Lord made to Abraham that they would be, for, first of all, that, that um, no one will be able, or uh, what does he say in Genesis 12? Uh, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. Right? So that's the first, first thing you notice that in verse 8. Balaam says, I can't curse those whom God has blessed. So that is definitely drawing our attention back to that Abrahamic covenant. The second aspect is the, uh, the, ble- the, the aspect of the numerous offspring, right? Uh, where the Lord said to Abraham, I will make your descendants great, as great as the sand on the seashore or the stars in heaven. So like Genesis 13, verse 16, I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Or Genesis 15, 5, he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Okay, so so what what Balaam is doing through his cursing, which is actually a bless, blessing, is reiterating the promise God has made. Israel will become this great of a nation, okay? So that's the first oracle. The second oracle is in 23, verse 18 is where it starts. Rise, Balak, and hear. Give ear to me, O son of Zippor. God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? Behold, I received a command to bless. He is blessed and I cannot revoke it. He has not beheld misfortune in Jacob, nor has he seen trouble in Israel. The Lord their God is with them, and the shout of a king is among them. God brings them out of Egypt, and it is, and is for them like the horns of the wild ox. Okay, notice there, just think about uh, back in chapter 10, right, where Moses said, Arise, O Lord, and go out before us. Scatter your enemies, right? The enemies of Israel see this happening. There's something different about this nation. Uh, verse 23, for there is no enchantment against Jacob, no divination against Israel. Now it shall be said of Jacob and Israel, what has God wrought? Behold a people, as a lioness it rises up, and as a lion it lifts itself. It does not lie down until it has devoured the prey and drunk the blood of the slain. So in the second oracle, um, again, what we see here is that God will not fail to fulfill the promise he has made to his people. Notice in verse 19, God is not a liar, nor will he change his mind. Then notice in verse 20, again, that I cannot curse those whom God has blessed. And then in verse 23, there's that celebration of the deliverance that Yahweh has provided for this people. So um, what God has promised to do, he will be faithful to do. And Balaam is again reaffirming that to this to to the to Balak and then ultimately to this second generation as well. And then we get to the last two oracles. So in 24 verse 3 
and then in 2415. And these two, if we, we look at them together, there's in both of these, well, specifically in the third oracle, there's Edenic imagery. So it's drawing our minds back to the Garden of Eden is the, is the first aspect. And then secondly, oh, in, in the third oracle, but also more primarily in the fourth oracle, we have language that draws us back to the promise in Genesis 49, where Jacob blesses his son, specifically Judah. And he says that the scepter will rise out of Judah, and that's drawing our attention to ultimately the one who will, the seed of the woman that will come and crush the head of the serpent, as was promised in Genesis 3. So let's look at this. Verse uh, 3, he took up his, this is 24, he took up his discourse and said, the oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, the oracle of the man whose eye is opened, the oracle of him who hears the words of God, who sees the vision of the Almighty falling down with his eyes uncovered. How lovely are your tents, O Jacob, your encampments, O Israel, like palm groves that stretch afar, like gardens beside a river, like aloes that the Lord has planted, like cedar trees beside the waters. Water shall flow from his buckets, and his seed shall be in many waters. His king shall be higher than Agag, and his kingdom shall be exalted. Okay, notice that like garden type language, the, the beautiful flourishing of the nation of Israel. Verse 8, God brings him out of Egypt and is for him like the horns of the wild ox. He shall eat up the nations, his adversaries, and shall break their bones in pieces and pierce them through with his arrows. He crouched, he lay down like a lion and like a lioness who will rouse him up. Blessed are those who bless you and cursed are those who curse you. And then look down at this verse 15 of chapter 24. And he took up his discourse and said, The oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, the oracle of the man whose eye is opened, and the oracle of him who hears the words of God and knows the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty falling down with his eyes uncovered. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. Edom shall be dispossessed. Seir also... His enemies shall be dispossessed. Israel is doing valiantly, and one from Jacob shall exercise dominion and destroy the survivors of cities. Okay, so um, notice in, in those verses we just read, right, in verse 17, especially in verse 19, um, that star coming out of Jacob and the scepter out of Israel. Okay, so in Genesis 49, verses 9 through 10, this is what Jacob prophesied about Judah. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. Okay, you notice that also in uh, 24.9, right? That same language speaking about the nation of Israel. Uh, Judah's a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you've gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness, who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Right? So, so he's describing here... Uh, connecting again that promise that was made about Judah and ultimately from the line of Judah comes David and then Jesus, right, who is the king. And then this last oracle in in chapter 24 and 15 and following there um, is a prophecy concerning the latter days. And I'm going to read you this quote from Stephen Dempster. And if you're reading this, you've already, if you're reading Dempster, you've already read this, but he says this, the prophecy places Israel's hope and a future ruler who will crush the skull of its enemies. Did you see that in verse uh, 17? The, this one, the, the, the scepter that arises out of Israel, is going to come and crush the forehead 
of its enemies. And again, that's drawing us back to Genesis 3, the seed of the woman. He will bruise the heel, but the, the seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head. Anyway, but what Dempster is saying, this prophecy places Israel's hopes in a future ruler who will crush the skull of its enemies. The last time a prophecy was made in which the expression the latter days occurred was in Jacob's blessing to his sons in Genesis 49. In that blessing, the tribe of Judah was singled out as the one that would have the strength of a lion and whose universal rule would even transform nature. In summary then, the Balaam oracles envision a king emerging from Israel to destroy its enemies. Okay, so, so what's happening here again is that, that Israel is being reminded again of what God has promised to do through, through them. Um, I am out of time. I spent way too much time on that. Uh, basically, the rest of the book, in chapter 25, you have uh, Balaam convinces Balak, you know, I can't curse them, but you know how you, how you get them to, to fall? Lead them into, into idolatry. And so the people are led away by these uh, by the sexual relations, and they begin worshiping Baal, and the Lord brings a judgment on them. Then in chapter 26, you have a census of the second generation. Okay, so at this point now, all that first generation has died off. We're starting now with a second generation, and they're preparing to go into the land. There's a lot of... Uh, instructions regarding how the land was to be divided and how it was to stay within family lines. There are questions of what happens if a man dies and has no sons? Do the daughters, do they get to keep that land? We don't want it being transferred to another tribe that they marry into. So how do we deal with with that? Um, We see them in uh, chapter 31, they go to war with with, uh, Midian and they kill Balaam because of what he did, and they, they exact judgment for the Moabites who led away uh, Israel into idolatry. So there's judgment there. And then in chapter 32, we see Reuben and Gad. So that's two tribes. They go and they settle in the land. So Israel, right, if you, you picture you have the Sea of Galilee going down to the Dead Sea, and the Jordan River runs in between. And so the promised land is all on the west side, right? The west side towards the Mediterranean Sea, that's where Israel is today. That's the promised land. But Reuben and Gad settle on the east side of the river. And so there there are questions about, well, we need the men from Reuben and Gad to go and help us conquer the land. So they agree to go, and then they will come back and and settle that land. And then uh, the book ends in chapter 36 uh, with... um, Oh yeah, no, the not transferring the inheritance between the tribes. And again, this is because if, if that were to happen, you know, uh, Gad gets some of Reuben's land, there's nothing left. There's no physical blessing for that people. And so there's not to be this transfer of the land. I think this is also why you have the, uh, was it every 70 years, the land goes back to all the prior owners, right? So that there's always land for specific, specific people. Um, one other passage that I skipped. In chapter 33, uh, there's instruction for when they go into the land, make sure you wipe out all the enemies. 
Okay, this is going to be the, the problem that we're going to run into in Joshua and Judges, is the failure to wipe out all their enemies. But this is, again, something the Lord has told them to do. If you don't do this, they're going to lead you astray, and they're going to be a thorn in your side. And so that, that happens there. So the book ends. Uh, they are, the land is before them, and they're ready to go in and conquer it. That faithless generation has died off. And that's the book of Numbers, sort of. Questions? That was a lot of stuff. All right, so next time, read through Deuteronomy. Um, Deuteronomy is a great book. Deuteronomy is a, a really good, uh, enjoyable, it's all enjoyable because it's the Bible, right? Uh, but Deuteronomy is a, is a unique book, so we will look at that, a book of covenant. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. You know, we thank you for these examples that are set forth for us, uh, which we can learn. Uh, help us, Lord, to, even as we think about grumbling and complaining, and the sin of unbelief, help us to not do that, to uh, continue to fight sin and to be thankful for what you have provided and to see your providential hand and your orchestration of all things, to give you praise for what you've done. Thank you for your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.